Let me um, pray as we turn to the Bible. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word says uh, that the, the flowers of the field, Lord, they, they grow and then they wither, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, may you speak to us this morning from your word. Amen. Amen. Okay, now someone has said, I recently read, um, someone has said that we are the most authority-averse culture ever. Okay, of all cultures ever, we are the ones who are most averse to external authority. I mean, take, um, take for example, expressive individualism. Okay, this idea that I get to decide who I am, and to be really me, to really live, to really thrive, I've got to be free to express that to the world. Okay, in such a worldview, of course, views any external authority to itself, any external authority other than itself, as oppressive. Okay, but you don't have to be an expressive individualist, do you, to resent authority? I mean, you've all, you have almost certainly experienced that rising resentment that we can feel when someone else tells you what to do and you don't want to do it. And you find yourself thinking, who does he think he is telling me what to do? Okay, but imagine that you are facing a problem and you know you can't fix this on your own, but someone else, maybe your boss, maybe it's a problem at work, maybe your boss... Maybe your supervisor can fix it. And imagine that they did fix it. Okay, imagine that they went into bat for you and they talked to whoever needed talking to and they sorted whatever needed sorting. Then you wouldn't resent their authority, would you? You'd be grateful for it. You'd be thankful for it. You'd be thankful for the way that they have used their position, who they are, on your behalf. Okay, now think about what about problems that go deeper even than just problems at work, like damaged relationships, or maybe a habit that is damaging you and you, you can't break it, or maybe the physical or psychological health of someone you love. Okay, what if someone could use their authority to fix that problem? Okay, well, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, and in today's passage, we see Jesus doing exactly this, don't we? And as you see him using his authority on behalf of others, Mark wants you to consider not who does he think he is, but who do I think he is? Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And what is my response going to be to who he is? Okay, first point then. When authority speaks, we're going to see five areas where Jesus exercises his authority. Firstly, he has authority to teach. Okay, look at verse 21. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Okay, so far, so normal. Probably no different from anything else that would have been going on in any other synagogue or around the place in that day. Okay, but then look at verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And the scribes were respected religious leaders okay, of their day, and they combined a number of roles. They combined the role of teacher or professor, 
and lawyer and moral ethicist. Okay, so these guys had authority, didn't they? Okay, they had a certain measure of authority. And when they taught, they would take the Old Testament law and they would apply it and explain it. But with Jesus, okay, people are amazed at what he's teaching for two reasons, Mark says. Verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Okay, so what Jesus was teaching was nothing like what they were hearing from the scribes. Okay, learned and authoritative, though that was. It was new. And in verses 14 and 15, Mark gives us a taster of what they were hearing. Okay, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, imagine for a moment it's Saturday night. You imagine it was last night and you've invited a bunch of friends over to watch a film or to, you know, watch a match, you know, England beating Wales at rugby, something like that, and on, on the TV. And they're all in the lounge, okay, they're all sat on the sofas in the lounge. You're in the kitchen preparing some food for them all. And suddenly someone calls from the lounge, it's starting. You know exactly what they mean, don't you? You know that when they say it's beginning, it's starting, you know you've got to get out of the kitchen and into the lounge because the thing that you have been waiting for, the thing that everyone has been waiting for, the reason you are gathered there has begun. So get out of the kitchen. And Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. It started. Because the thing that they have all been waiting for the thing that all the Old Testament prophets had been pointing to, it's begun, it's happening now, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's rule and God's reign, God's plan to put everything right and to right every wrong, to redeem creation and the end of the old and the start of the new, it's beginning now. The moment has come. You know, a few years back, we read a story, a, a book as a family, called A Moment Comes. And the blurb for this book promised that this was a story that builds to a great crescendo when the moment comes. And it didn't. We got to the last line. I was reading it to the kids. I got to the last line of the last page, turned that last page, read the last line, and we all looked at each other and went, is that it? Seriously? Since then, we have renamed that book, A Moment Didn't Come. It's a flop. Okay, that's not the impression Jesus gave, was it? Because it wasn't just that he was saying something that was new. It was the way that he said it. It, the, it was the way he was. Verse 22 again. He taught them as one who had authority. Now, you can probably name some names, can't you? You can probably remember being back in uh, school and sat in a classroom with a teacher who was not that great. Okay, hopefully, you can also remember being sat in a classroom with a teacher who made their subject come alive. Okay, the contrast that these people are experiencing, interestingly, it's much more profound than that. Because it's not that the scribes were bad teachers. It's not even that they didn't have authority. It's that they spoke as commentators on the text. 
But Jesus, he had serious authority. He spoke like the author of the text. That's how he came across. And the implication is that the definitive moment in history has arrived because he's arrived. Now, if that was coming from anyone else, you would either dismiss them as an egotistical narcissist or possibly have them interviewed by a psychiatrist. Somehow Jesus is different, isn't he? He doesn't come across as either of those. You know, one Jewish writer who's not a Christian compares Jesus to other rabbis of the time. And he says, there are plenty of other rabbis who also had a sense of being in a special time in history, even of having a special calling, a divine calling. But with Jesus, he said, this sense, Jesus has this sense of being unique and of being highly self-aware of his authority. And yet, you never once get a sense of him creating a cult of personality around him. In fact, it's the opposite. I mean, you know, when the disciples come and find him early in the morning and they say, everyone is looking for you, Jesus says, yeah, we're moving on. It's the opposite. There's a deep humility about him. There is, this Jewish writer says, no one like him in the historic literature. Okay, but what Mark wants you to see is that that goes for what Jesus did as much as for what he said. Secondly, he has authority to free. Because while Jesus was teaching, a man with an unclean spirit cries out, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It's not so much a question, is it, as a statement. We want nothing to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth. Go away. They had no intention of letting letting go their grip on this man. Okay, I want you to notice. Notice how he, this spirit, notice how it refers to itself in the plural. What have you to do with us? It understands something. That... People, you know, if you have, it, it, under, it might understand something better than you might understand something. If you have a view, if you have a gentle Jesus, meek and mild view of Jesus, and that is that Jesus hasn't just come, he hasn't just come to free one individual, this man, or even just individuals. He has come to disarm and dismantle the entire power structure of darkness. What have you got to do with us? So verse 24, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, you probably know P.T. Barnum from the musical The Greatest Showman. How many of you have seen Greatest Showman? Yeah, most of us, okay. Great, great film. And Barnum's catchphrase was, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Okay, if that's the case, why does Jesus silence the demon? Because... As we said last week, the central question of this book is, who is this man? And the answer that the unclean spirit gives is almost identical to the answer that Peter will give in chapter 8, and Jesus commends him for it. So why rebuke the demon, verse 25, be silent and come out of him? Why not welcome the publicity? Well, when later Jesus says clearly who he is, he makes a direct link to the cross because you can't understand who he is. 
until you understand the cross. Okay, but there's another reason he silences him, and that is that you can have totally correct views about who Jesus is, just like this unclean spirit does. Okay, you can know the truth. You can have your theology all lined up. But unless you trust that truth, unless you love that truth, unless you love the one that this truth is talking about, you have still got a big problem. You know, Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity exists in possessive pronouns. Because a demon might know who Jesus is. He might know that Jesus is saviour and Lord. But the heart, the life of Christianity says, he's my saviour. He's my Lord. I love him and I trust him. Okay, when it comes to this showdown, okay, there is no showdown, is there? Because there's no contest. This is no nail-biting gladiatorial fight. Oh, Jesus has taken some hits. Oh, now the demon's taken. Now the demon's down. Oh, no, now he's back on his feet. Now Jesus is up against the rope. There's nothing like that, is there? No nail-biting moments. Is Jesus going to triumph or the demon going to triumph? Jesus simply shuts it up and kicks it out. Verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And a man once bound, a man under control of darkness, is free. Verse 27, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Thirdly, he has authority to heal. Okay, Peter's mother-in-law is in bed sick with a fever in verse 31. Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. Now, if Jesus was a typical Roman or Greek healer, okay, he might have gone in there and, and said a spell, you know, said an incantation or two. There's nothing like that, is there? There's, he doesn't even pray. He, it's, this is totally devoid of drama and theatrics. Jesus walks in there, takes her by the hand, and that's it. She's healed. It is as if Jesus and sickness cannot exist in the same room. Okay, now when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you've been unwell for a bit, you know, like with a fever, how do you feel afterwards? Yeah, sometimes it can take a few hours, can't it? Maybe even a few days before you're feeling yourself again. Here, Jesus enters, the fever leaves, and Peter's mother-in-law gets up, and verse 31, she began to serve them. It's as if she goes, oh, wow, I feel totally fine. Anyone want some tea? Yeah, I've got some cake in the cupboard. Jesus, do you want some cake? Okay, why is Mark telling you that? Because he wants you to see when Jesus heals, he heals completely. And not just fevers. Okay, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man. Okay, but there's a problem with modern medicine, isn't there? And that is that doctors are becoming more and more subspecialized. And they're experts in smaller and smaller areas, like your big toe. Okay, you've got a big toeologist, haven't you? And they're no good for anything else except for your left big toe. Okay, look what, look what Mark says about Jesus, apart from Dr. Podmore, of course. Okay? Listen to what Mark says about Jesus. 
He healed many who were sick with various diseases. In other words, Jesus does not say, if you've got a fever, I can handle that. A bit of heart failure, sorry, I'm going to have to refer you to one of my colleagues. Whoever, with whatever they brought to Jesus, goes away healed. And Mark wants you to ask, he wants you to consider, who else do I know who can do that? Who else have I ever met who can do what this man can do? Who else has this kind of authority? Fourthly, he has authority to cleanse. Verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. As one commentator says, leprosy wasn't just a diagnosis, it was a sentence. And to stop it spreading in the community, lepers were forced to live apart in an endless isolation. Because it wasn't just that you were sick, you were unclean. And the Old Testament laws about unclean, clean and holy, they were designed to weave into Israel's daily life an understanding that God was holy and we're not. And to approach him, we've got to be clean, but to enter his presence, you've got to be holy. And that meant if you were a leper, you were literally an outsider and you had to live outside, cut off from your family and your friends. Now, I don't know how you have, um, I don't know how you coped with lockdown or um, you know, if you've got COVID isolation or, or quarantine. Okay, multiply what you experienced by the potentially endless shame and isolation that a leper experienced, of having people recoil from you publicly. It's no wonder that writers of the time described lepers as the living dead. A leper didn't just need healing. They needed cleansing. They needed being brought back in. Which is why this man comes the way he does. He comes on his knees begging. He's desperate. He's also doubting, isn't he? But look what he doubts. Because it's not Jesus' ability. He knows Jesus has the power to cleanse him. But does he have the will? Will he want to cleanse me? Doesn't take long to find out, does it? Verse 41. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Because Jesus, Jesus doesn't just have authority. He has compassion. And instead of recoiling and retreating in horror, he reaches out and touches him. Think about that. Jesus could have cleansed him just by willing it, couldn't he? Just say the words internally. Or he could have cleansed him just by saying the words. He doesn't. He stretches out his hand. And for the first time in however long, this man feels someone touch him. And it's Jesus. And the leprosy, it's gone. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. So, who has the authority 
and the compassion to make the unclean clean? Who can bring the outsider back in? Jesus. Fifthly, he has authority to forgive. And there are these four friends in Capernaum, and they've got another friend, and he's paralyzed. And they know that if they can just get him to Jesus, Jesus will do the rest. But when they get him there to where Jesus is, they can't even get in the door. So what do they do? Okay, somehow they get him up onto the flat roof, and verse 4, they remove the roof above him, above Jesus. Okay, who were these guys? They've got to be engineers, haven't they? Okay, they, they must be engineers. Okay, these guys have got to be students at the Capernaum School of Engineering because if an opening to Jesus cannot be found, we are going to make one. And they lower him right in front of Jesus. Okay, what is that? If you are American, you would say, that's bold. Okay, if you're British, you'll say, that's rude. They've just broken my roof. <laughs> Okay, if you are Jesus, you would say that's faith. Okay, because faith takes a problem that is bigger than us and it puts it in front of Jesus, knowing he will do the rest. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that is when the fun really starts, isn't it? Because there are some scribes there. And they hear that and they start thinking, verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, what would you think if after the service, you and I are standing um, by your car out in the car park chatting and someone else reverses their car into your car and puts this massive dent in it? And if you and I are chatting there and they reverse it, put this massive dent in it, the driver gets out and I turn and I say to them, hey, don't worry, no damage done, I forgive you, you don't need to pay anything. And he drives away happy. Yeah, thank you so much, Martin. Okay, what would you be thinking? You'd be sat there thinking, stood there thinking, hang on, this is my car. Okay, it's for me to say whether he's got to pay anything or not. And these scribes know that ultimately all sin is against God. So only God can say to this man, you're forgiven. Who does Jesus think he is? Okay, but Jesus knows what he's thinking, what they're thinking. Verses 8 and 9, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? It's a good question, isn't it? Okay, because anyone could say, hey, it's okay, your sins are forgiven, and no one in that room would be any the wiser whether this man's sins actually have been forgiven or not. But to say, get up and walk, everyone's going to know pretty quickly whether you've got the authority and the power to do that, aren't they? And yet, to really forgive sins? Who can do that except God? If all sin is against God, then the scribes are right, aren't they? Who other than God has the authority to forgive sins? Verses 10 to 12. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man gets up, picks up his bed, walks out the room, and everyone else is sat there open-mouthed. Why? Because they've got an answer to the question, haven't they? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can do what only God can do? Jesus. What are you supposed to do with all this? What are you supposed to do with a man 2,000 years ago who had that kind of authority? Second point then, when authority calls. Okay, look again at the response Jesus called for in his teaching. Verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, we, all of us here, every one of us, has a way of seeing the world. You have a way of judging your own actions and attitudes, of evaluating your priorities and your motives. And Jesus is saying, all of us, we all need to repent. We need to reorient the way that we see life, the universe and everything in line with him. But you also need to believe. You need to move this from this being an intellectual thing to a heart thing. You need to be able to say what the unclean spirit could never say, that Jesus coming as saviour and Lord really is good news and he's my saviour and he's my Lord. Okay, but then you need to do something else as well. See, Jesus enters the world of Simon, Peter and Andrew, the world of boats and nets and fish and sand and sea and says, verse 17, follow me. And Mark says, verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then he sees James and John mending their nets and Jesus calls them. And verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Listen, repenting and believing and following Jesus is, an, is not a one-off, been there, done that, got the t-shirt thing at the start of the Christian life. This is a every day, I am going to get out of bed and do this sort of thing. I'm going to reorient my life around Christ. I'm Christ. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to have him be the one who forms me and shapes me and disciples me. Not Netflix. Not whatever media I consume. I'm going to let Christ be the one who does that. And like Peter and his friends, okay, that might mean us giving some stuff up, mightn't it? It might mean a reordering. It will mean a reordering of our priorities. It might mean a challenge to how, or change to how you relate to your career or how to you, you make money or where you get your identity from or reevaluating your priorities or even for some of us, some key relationships. You see, if you, if you are of a more conservative mindset, you might think that what everyone really needs to do is follow some good old-fashioned traditional morality and the world would be a much better place. To follow a set of old, old rules, return to traditional morality. Or if you are of a more liberal mindset, you might think that what everyone needs to do is follow their dreams, follow their inner voice. Jesus says, no, what both need to do is follow me. Why should you do that? Why should you let him be the one who shapes and fashions and molds you and you become a daily disciple of him? Last point then, when our hearts respond. Okay, firstly, why should you do that? Because maybe you're sat here this morning and you are like the man oppressed by the unclean spirit. 
by which I do not mean that you are possessed by a demon, but that there can be things in our lives like wrong habits or destructive desires or behaviours or patterns of thinking that we just can't get free from. And what you discover is that you need an authority, a power greater than your willpower. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, I'm that power. I'm the one that you need. So come and daily follow me. But to experience that power, you've got to relinquish your own power. You've got to give up the authority to your own life. And the reason that you can do that giving up is that Christ gave up everything for you. And at the cross, he was plunged into the darkness to bring you into the light. But it's at the cross, Paul tells us, where those same dark powers try to destroy Jesus, that Jesus made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them. And it is as you daily repent and trust him and follow him that you will know by experience the freedom that he has won for you. Second reason you should do this is because maybe you're like the leper. We're all like the leper, not outwardly, okay, but inwardly. Our sin stains us and leaves us feeling unclean, unworthy and outside. Because if people really knew what I was like, they would withdraw from me just like they withdrew from the leper. So just like him, we need Jesus to cleanse us and bring us back in. I don't know if you noticed it. I've noticed it for the first time this week. Okay, what happened when Jesus cleansed the leper? The obvious answer is, well, the leper went out, the ex-leper went out and told everyone what Jesus had done. And as a result, verse 45, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. Okay, can you see what's happened? He's changed places with the leper. Before, it was the leper who couldn't enter a town and was out in desolate places, but Jesus heals him, and now the leper can come in, and it is Jesus who is on the outside. Guys, that's the gospel. That is the point of the gospel, because at the cross, Jesus takes the place of every leper, of every sinner, of you and of me, and he takes our sin upon himself, and he's stained by our sin, that we might be cleansed. He's cast out, that we might be brought back in. Okay, but finally, why should you do it? Because we can be like the paralyzed man. Again, not outwardly, but inwardly. Okay, stuff can happen, circumstances in your life, or we can fail in ways that leave us emotionally or spiritually paralyzed and unable to move forward. And we're brought to an end of ourselves. And when that is the case, like this man, we need some friends, don't we? We need some friends to take us to Jesus. Why you need to be in church, why you need to be in a small group. But more even than friends, we need Jesus. The Jesus who is made weak for us. The Jesus who is carried by his friends, not to a rooftop, but to a tomb. And he did it for you. And in his weakness, you can find strength. In his death, you can find life. In his resurrection power, you can find the power to walk again. What should we do with this Jesus? Jesus. 
We should repent, we should believe, and we should follow. Let's pray.